Welcome to the CRE Exchange Podcast, where we deep dive into the global trends and challenges of CRE professionals across all sectors of the commercial real estate industry. We engage with experts in the space to bring you innovative insights into industry practices, opportunities, and challenges to better inform your decisions. This episode is brought to you by Altus Group, a global leader in asset and fund intelligence for commercial Welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of CRE Exchange. I'm Cole Perry, your host and senior market analyst at Altus Group, leading provider of asset and fund intelligence. I'm joined by Omar Elterai, our U.S. Director of Research. Today, we have a special guest interview. We're joined by our friend, Dr. Stephen Bushbaum. Since 2022, Stephen has been Research Director at TREP, where his talented team of analysts produce articles and reports on the macroeconomic and CMBS markets. You might recognize him from his weekly Market Pulse articles and monthly market webinar. Prior to joining TREP, Dr. Bushbaum was an assistant professor at Texas Tech University, where he taught courses in real estate fundamentals, real estate finance, and financial modeling. He also spent six years at Voya Investment Management in the commercial real estate whole loan and CMBS divisions, specializing in risk management, real estate, and structured financial modeling and risk capital analysis. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. And Omar, I'll turn it over to you to kick us off. Stephen, it's really great to have you on. You and I met a little bit over a year ago. And since then, I've really made multiple efforts to find ways for us to connect and collaborate. So thank you very much for joining today. The reason why I've continued to try to manufacture encounters with you is because I view you as having one of the best industry minds. You bring a unique perspective and have an excellent pulse on CRE markets. For many folks who know you already through your work and great coverage and analysis, no intro is really necessary. But for the folks who haven't met you quite yet, I'm sure they'll understand all my praise after this conversation. But for those same folks who haven't had the good fortune of coming across your analysis and commentary, I hope you can tell them a little bit more about yourself. So you're a father, husband, former portfolio manager, turned professor, currently research lead. What other titles or hats do you wear? Gosh, if you want to go like really off the beaten path, I was almost, I can't quite call myself a pro racquetball player, but I'll say almost pro. We talked about my back injuries that I've had over the years. It stems from that that abuse. If we're going to go deep on the personal side, I love racquetball. From dominating the tee, I know some squash, but does it get as physical? It does. Squash is more like a suicide sprint game. Racquetballs that like, when you get into it, it's just like, fluid geometry in the court. It's a game of angles. So I, I love it to death, but I'm now prohibited by my wife from playing it because she knows I'm like a dog going after a Frisbee. I can't help myself. I love that. If not racquetball and I guess controlling the tee, if that's the right terminology, what gets you excited each day when going in for like CRE research as opposed to racquetball? Sure. So CRE has, has always been an interesting asset class to me because it's one where you have, we could call them in economics terms, lack of efficiencies or talk about alpha. But when it gets down to it, it's such an interesting asset class to me because really hard work pays off. It's all about information asymmetries, to some extent, technological advancement. So relative to other asset classes, there's just so many wells that you can mine for interesting insights. That's what I love about it. It's not like corporate bonds where to some degree, it's it's a paper tiger. With CRE, at least you have a tangible asset with a rent roll. So if you want to value it, you can just go in off the street, look at the tenant roster on the door for some office buildings, call up some brokers on four lease signs and actually put a value on it. It's just such a wild 
asset class to me in that respect versus corporate bonds. I would say there's almost higher barriers to entry, right? Because you have to be plugged into so many platforms versus just the sticks and bricks of real estate and its ever-changing landscape. Your career has been, it's not the typical path that I've seen taken, right? So you were a practitioner and then you went into academia. I've seen that move happen a few times, but then you're back in the industry and yet there's been this common thread of CRE debt. What curiosity were you chasing or what was that common thread that you were pulling on that really helped drive your career? Market efficiency, I would say. Over the years, I've used TREP data in so many different aspects. And so knowing that there was a lot going on behind the scenes while I was on the academic side that I wanted to be a part of, that's ultimately what drew me back. Gosh, from just the cloud computing platform and how transformative that was for me as a researcher, that seems like a silly mundane thing. But let's put this in, in perspective here. When I started working with TREP data in my PhD program back in 2015, it could take you three to eight hours to manipulate the data in size. Because we think about how much has changed in computers over the years. And that same thing now in our cloud architecture could take three to five seconds. It's really depressing when I think about how many hours I spent after pressing go to analyze data uh, and how spoiled we are now. But getting back to the, the cloud platform, what I found is there's so much opportunity for what we're bolting on to the TREP data now, third-party data sets. It's a really exciting time. And I would liken it to a similar idea out there is the large language model, right? You just think about all the innovations that are going on across our industry and the typical innovation speed. I was like, you know, I'm going to miss out on that. So if I look back 20 years from now and I've spent a life in academia, that was too disconnected from what's actually taking place behind the curtain, I, I won't be fully satisfied. And so I've been familiar with TREP for as long as I've been in CRE, but I feel as though it is a firm that consistently punches above its weight class, and it really owns that CMBS and securitized space. But I also know that the company has way more than that. So would you mind providing a little bit of background about the company, maybe some of its origins and its current place in the market now? Sure, absolutely. So we'll roll back the clock to the 1980s, SNL thrift crisis. So I taught this every single semester for, gosh, like about 10 years, which is wild to think that now. But during that period, we had over a thousand institutions that failed in a span of six to eight years and massive consolidation took place. What happened to those commercial real estate loans? Sometimes we refer to the SNL crisis as the RTC crisis, the Resolution Trust Corp. So that's where they put all of these, some performing, some non-performing loans into securitization pools and liquidated them. And it turns out that was a very effective vehicle, investment vehicle, because prior to that, it was a lot of balance sheet lending. And so BlackRock ultimately got TREP in at the ground floor when the CMDS market finally just took off in the mid-90s. And since then, we've been written into the prospectus stock of every securitization as the primary data vendor. And so we have almost 30 years now of securitization history that we've been able to learn from. Gosh, turning back the clock to about uh, just after 07 going into 2010, that's when we really started to branch out uh, a lot harder into the broader CRE space using our data to provide insights to brokers, appraisers, tax consultants, you name it. If you need capital markets data that's readily available or line item expense data, um, a whole host of, of data points, valuations. If you're doing distressed workouts, gosh, truck data is incredibly valuable. 
for you because you get so much granular detail about what's happening with these loan modifications. So we have our CMBS and CRE, but we've also gone into banking space. We have a bank consortium that contributes loan level data quarterly. And so this provides some incredibly invaluable insights because I know you're familiar with this and I'm sure some of our uh, audiences as well. A lot of what you get in the bank space is aggregate, it's portfolio level. And at best, you might get institution level. You don't get loan level insights. And so we have an anonymized loan level repository called the TREP Taller, stands for anonymized loan level repository, that we provide insights in the banking space there. It's anonymized going down to the zip code level. And we also have a life insurance company consortium that's been in existence now since the 90s as well for total return benchmarking. But we can also provide low-level insights out of that as well. And then the most recent product that we launched is our CLO platform. Fantastic. The clients that you're serving with these products, is it pretty much covered the whole gamut of the CRE debt space? Or is it predominantly the CMBS traders? Can you provide any color on who you're serving? Sure. Uh, I don't want to uh, misstate the statistics here, but we have substantial coverage in the CMBS space because everybody out there knows we're the gold standard. It used to be that TREP data was on the Bloomberg platform. Now it's much more of a separate offering. But at the end of the day, our cash flow engine and our credit level insights are unsurpassed by anybody else in the industry. So that is definitely a core market. Fantastic. And so what are some of those themes you've been seeing across your client base that you would say are reflective of the current time we're in, maybe in addition to the, the one that you just highlighted in terms of maybe there's going to be a shift in the capital stack or somebody's looking at a way to get in. Are there any other themes that you've seen? That's been the main one. So with some of the opportunistic debt capital that's out there, you care very much about how deals are being structured, both in the traditional conduits, large loan and single asset, single borrower space, uh, as well as the CRE CLO space. And that's been one that I would say of the ones, all the topics we could pick from that's interesting to talk about. That one still just really intrigues me because you had such a large amount of capital from CRE CLOs flood into the market between 2019 and 2022. Predominantly, I think the rough statistic that I've pulled is about 60% to two thirds of that went into multifamily. And a lot of that was value add. That's been, I think, one segment that has just been on fire in both good ways and bad. And I don't mean to overstate that and say, oh my gosh, multifamily and series CLOs is just flushing down the toilet. It's not it at all. It's just, there's a lot of, of factors in play and it just continues every month. There's uh, more interesting headlines that come out about, especially the modifications. We've talked about this a number of times and the strategies that you can execute on I've seen modification structures that I've never seen before in traditional CMBS deals that are getting executed in CRE CLOs. So Stephen, high level, how would you characterize today's CRE and CRE debt markets? I know you've taught a lot of real estate fundamentals courses. So does this compare to any other periods in time that the industry has gone through? Does it remind you of anything? There are elements that remind me of the 2006 and seven underwriting in terms of pro forma underwriting and the assumptions and how quick loans all of a sudden became problem loans. So some of that rings true. I would say the interest rate adjustment or the interest rate impact of the 1980s rings the most similar. Very different factors in play today than there were back then. I don't want to get into the background of this quote. Happy to unpack this one later, but the Mark Twain quote 
that history rhymes. I think it's actually a much more elegant quote, something about uh, kaleidoscopic pieces of the history past come to form an image of anyway. I'm going to butcher the quote, but he did not actually say that exact line. And I would say that that kaleidoscopic similarity of the 80s and 06, 07 period are, are definitely showing through. But we're in completely new territory with where we're at now. Because of informational transparency, technological advancements, the generational shifts and demographics that are going to make things very, very interesting in the housing market, say 15 years from now. Everybody can have their own framework. Since we're speaking with you, what's your breakdown or how do you frame the CRE debt space? Sure. So I would say looking in the past and looking ahead, the, the way I think about the year ahead is one of the big issues that we've had in CRE is low transaction volume. And we think about what one of the reasons that's keeping transaction volume low, high cost of capital. There's also just that catch-22 issue of, well, low transaction volume means lack of transparency, which just means additional low transaction volume. And so if I think what deals are getting done, the best of the best, and any repeat sales indices that we're going to be taking signals from, that's going to be the upper bounds, call it the more positive estimate of value trends. And then the more pessimistic end, we're going to get revaluations from problem loans. And if we think about how wide that gap is, if we start to see that narrow this coming year, that's going to be a really good thing. Because the wider that spread is between a positively biased repeat sales indices and the depressed valuations that we get in the problem loan market, right? that width and that bid ask, if you want to call it that, is, I would say, indicative of the problems at large. So to the extent we start seeing that convergence take place, that'll be a sign that, okay, we're close to the trough and maybe closer to an inflection point. We're, we're nowhere close to that at this point. So I guess all that to say, we probably won't start seeing convergence until we do finally get some Fed cuts and we start seeing players move off of the sidelines. Once cost of capital starts coming back in and we do start seeing more deal churn, that's where I'll feel a lot better. So long as inflation has been tamped down sufficiently that we have a recovery path now in sight. I'm going to dig in there a little bit just because you said when we start seeing cuts, do you think cuts have to precede that narrowing? I think to some degree, yes. Because right now, if I'm going to be doing transactions in any way, shape or form in today's market, me personally, I'm going to be very attracted to the super heavily discounted, close to land value core assets, core locations, something that I'm buying for such a low basis that I'm okay with it being a 20-year play. The sort of 1980s land plays that built generational wealth. And I think the fact that you're seeing some of those take place, whether or not you agree with the price they're buying out of the strategy they're taking, but the fact that you are seeing heavily discounted office transactions in San Francisco at least tells me that if somebody's willing to start catching what we're all calling a falling knife, whether or not you think they're going to get cut still speaks to where we're at in the real estate cycle. Going back to narrowing that gap, what piece do you think will likely move first or even move more over the coming year? Is that going to be coming from the existing debt space, whether that's from the balance sheets or in the securitized space? Or do you think that the transaction activity and those repeat sales, do you think that's going to actually narrow more. I hate to pin it to any one sector. I think it will be a combination. With the amount of private capital that's been built up, I think you'll start to see mounting pressure to actually 
you know, use those funds in some way, shape or form, the pressure to deploy is real. And I think we probably will start seeing that maybe via leader. I, I, I don't know for sure, but that's just where I would guess you might see some of the, the larger volume taking place. And in, in many ways, the lack of distressed note sales or discounted payoffs, that's a good thing to me that, that we saw so much of that in 2009, 2010, 2011, that spoke to just how damaged liquidity was back then. And today we have a liquidity factor that we use in some of our models that's a scale of one to 10, 10 being the best, one being the worst. And the late 80s, early 90s, and in 2008, 2009, that index reached one or zero, effectively. There was no liquidity. Right now we're sitting at about a three and a half or four. So it's definitely not great, but it's not as bad as it could be. In terms of liquidity, have you seen any trends that are either concerning or affirming and confidence building around underwriting standards? Underwriting standards, I, I wouldn't say what's being underwritten today would concern me. Shoot, the, the debt yields that you're seeing in some of the new issuance, because we haven't seen a lot, but what limited amounts you have, it's very conservative. So if a deal pencils out at today's underwriting, that's a very durable loan, I would say. And so that's a good thing that you are seeing enough volume at these levels because it is very difficult to get deals to pencil. We've talked plenty about the modification volume and kicking the can down the road. And related to that, if you look at the monthly low loss liquidation volume, it's trailed down all year. In November, it was extremely low. So that speaks to the patience that we have in some of these deals. That's a good thing that you have the stomach on the part of bondholders, special servicers to work through these issues methodically. And that borrowers, we know they're having to contribute capital to get these modifications and they're continuing to do so. It's not just a binary outcome of support or not, though it might look like that at first. Certainly the posturing is part of the game on the borrower's part, saying that you're willing to hand the keys back. And the lender comes to the table with the next best offer and Lo and behold, negotiations pick back up and a deal is struck. So the fact that you're seeing that sort of dynamic take place is very good. Well, Stephen, I was really interested in your liquidity meter comment. We actually did a sentiments and expectations survey that you may have come across. And we asked folks to tell us within the next 12 months, basically, what are your expectations for capital availability? So the concern is both cost and availability. And about three in five told us that bank capital will be not at all available or not very available. And nearly the same fraction said the same for securitizations. So I think I know the answer to this, but are you guys seeing the same things? And maybe what other trends are you seeing across CRE collateral? We are seeing some of that similar sentiment. And I think of all of what we could lay out for the coming year, what we would be concerned about, the banking regulation causing further retrenchment is a real risk. And I think that's being well communicated to the parties and it's being taken into account. So my hope is that there will be some relief or walking back of the regulatory requirements because a 20 or 30% increase in risk capital is, that's just a gut punch and a half at a time when we could least afford it in the market. I like to think that regulators will realize there's a real liquidity constraint in place already. And if we put this in place too quick or too aggressively in the terms for what's going to be required, that will probably prolong some of the pain shoot by one to three years, uh, if I had to just pick a number out of the air. 
Regulatory is certainly one of them, but do you see any other big areas of risks or concern that you're watching out for? I'm glad you asked. We were kicking around some macro factors earlier today. And the big one that really stands out that would give me some intestinal discomfort or keep me awake at night is the geopolitical landscape. And that's a, a real one that would come out of left fields completely outside of the scope or control of our market that could be extremely painful. And just the fact that you're seeing tensions, you know, these little fires being lit all over the globe in different ways is concerning. So perhaps with maybe geopolitical risk aside, if rates are still elevated compared to historical standards, if maybe capital is becoming more available, but still is a bit constrained, what's your overall outlook for 2024 and the CRE debt markets? Do you have any high conviction calls or any areas that you feel a little bit more confident in? My high conviction call is, put it this way, I would not feel really good about buying low coupon front pay bonds because of the amount of extensions that are likely to happen or lack of payoffs. If I look at the maturity volume and the corresponding debt yield, say for office specifically, the weighted average debt yield for urban office coming due in the next three quarters is 8.8%. There's about 20, almost 27 billion coming. I think the cash and refi at a 12% debt yield would imply about 7 billion in capital needed to take out those loans. So where's it going to come from? It probably won't. And you see that in a number of different asset classes across securitized space. So I think just in broader across the CRE landscape, oh gosh, how many times have we called it an adjustment or a repricing or a reset, right? We'll pick your term. It's going to be a continued evolution of that. And I think it optimistic case is the second half of 24 does start looking a lot better. We have pickup and origination volumes. And I, I know earlier this year, insurance costs became a concern for many lenders and you know this better, where it's rising special servicing. You have a number of notable strategic defaults taking place. I'd say it's a tough time to be a lender, I would say, with an existing book, but it's a pretty attractive time to be a lender making new loans and new originations if you can find a borrower that, that can have a deal that pencils. But what do you think some of the main priorities will be for lenders through 2024, whether you want to break that into the first half, second half? What do you think those top priority issues will be? Sure. I'm glad you mentioned the insurance repricing or question of coverage period, since you've seen some policies not get renewed. That's one I think is still probably not priced in enough. Gosh, let me just ask you guys, if two years ago, I'd ask you what inflation rate should we be putting on insurance as a line item and OPEX? Two to 3%. And what have we seen? It depends on what market you're in, but yeah. 20, 30% at least. It's, it's gone up over 100% in some markets. So I think some of that property efficiency probably will continue to be a very interesting theme. As a, an industry, we've never really taken to ESG or some of the other, gosh, whatever you want to call it, the, the topics du jour. But I think what always resonates is efficiency and long-term viability of your asset. So I, I'm thinking that over the coming couple of years, we'll start seeing some really interesting innovation in data metrics and how we build out some of the older assets in the future. There's a lot of strategies that you can take to 
increase your physical resiliency or efficiency. So I'm optimistic that we'll continue to see technological advancements that will surprise a lot of us. We think, gosh, today we're maybe a little bit jaded or biased to think something like, say, Class B older office that's just, gosh, flush it down the toilet for some of this stuff. It's just not going to be competitive in the current landscape. I'm hoping there's enough focus on innovation that we'll ultimately see some pushback to the positive for a number of these assets. I, I couldn't tell you what it'll be, but I'm always amazed uh, when I do finally see these innovations come through and think, wow, this was not possible from a cost standpoint or underwriting standpoint to do X, Y, or Z with a building. And then all of a sudden, somebody comes up with an absolutely brilliant solution. It's incredibly simple that can take something that was never really competitive on a floor plate design or energy efficiency basis and turn the thing around. So I know that's a very specific case, but I, I do like seeing that sort of innovation at the property level. So taking your like lender hat off and maybe your property level hat off, how do you expect the uh, CRE debt market to perform in 2024? If we look at just the next 12 months, that could be about activity level or collateral performance, but also maybe deal structures shifting. What, what are you thinking about the next 12 months for CRE debt? Sure. So I think in terms of high level distress, we'll continue to see a grind higher. We haven't had enough issuance to correct for the denominator issue. And so just for a little inside baseball on our delinquency rate calculations, it, it takes about five to six months for a deal to season before it's eligible for inclusion in our delinquency rate calculation. Right? Because a loan that was just originated last month isn't going to go delinquent next month. How many times have we seen that in the last 20 years? In size, you'd probably count on one hand. And so that means that with a static or even roll down of the CMBS universe, even with the exact same amount outstanding in your numerator, the amount delinquent, you could see a continued tick up. And it's not just going to be that numerator dollar amount is holding steady. It's going to continue to grind higher. So I was looking at this last night or over the weekend about what's coming due in office. And I knew that fourth quarter was a heavy roll quarter. Fortunately, some of these are SASB deals that executed extension options. So it pushed it out into the fourth quarter of 2024. But there still is about 38 to 40 billion left in total in December across all CMBS. And a lot of that is office. I think that might even be the highest dollar amount by property type that's coming due. And I think, Omar, maybe I'd share this with you playfully. I was like, oh yeah, maybe this office delinquency rate hits 7%. And I think if you are talking about urban office, non-defeased, that still is a reality. It'll take about another 50 basis points, 50 or 60 of delinquency to occur in this last month of the year. But if it does, hey, my guess would be proved correct. So anyway, I guess to get back to your question, I think we continue to see a grind higher in delinquency. We continue to see a lot of modifications and creative capital structuring to fill the valuation gap and justify these modifications. And my hope is that maybe over the second half of the year, that still might be a little bit early, but since a lot of these loans that do get modified are open to prepayment, that the, the optimistic side of me says, right, if we do start seeing a drop in rates, once we start seeing modified loans exit the universe because they're able to obtain debt elsewhere, that's like my go sign for trying to pinpoint the trough or the inflection point. And I guess from a very personal level, where do you think you will be allocating your attention on research over the next year? Maybe going off of that last response, is it going to be finding the bottom, finding those turning points? Or 
Do you anticipate some other niche area needing Dr. Bushbaum's attention? I'm sure that will come about. But yes, I, I think that's really one of the most important things at this point is trying to pin down when we perhaps could see that inflection occur. I don't know that we're going to see it necessarily for office on transaction volume or just in general, because you look at the lease roll schedules for these office properties, and we still have a lot of question marks to work through. If we do start seeing any sort of bankruptcies or credit issues in corporate space, that's going to probably translate into just hard decisions they're going to make on their real estate portfolio. And if you, you want to talk about it, the intersection of a specific geography and property type that I'll be watching, Washington, D.C. office. I overestimated the speed with which government would make decisions on their leased space this past year. I wasn't wrong in the fact that would be something that would come up budgetary-wise. It, honestly, it surprised me that it took six months for that to happen with some of the congressional investigations. But again, my mind is is private sector calibrated. And so the fact that's come up in congressional hearings and in some of the budget discussions, that's one of those that, gosh, you talk about something that would be absolutely catastrophic for a market. If the GSA is putting back to market millions of square feet in size, what could end up being a positive is if they say, okay, a centralized Headquarters no longer makes sense for a lot of these agencies because so much of the workforce is now decentralized. And this is part of our hiring and retention strategy is to continue with uh, a hybrid remote structure. So I think if they start looking into shedding high cost DC leases and move into a satellite campus or satellite lease space structure, that could be very interesting for the office sector. I'd say never underestimate the uh, government's ability to sign a one-year extension on a lease, though. That is true. It seems to be really good at that. We're unlikely to see that move take place very quickly. But the fact that those discussions are taking place publicly is something that I'm very interested to dig deeper uh, on and will be doing so. Uh, we have some good contacts that I'll be following up with in the next month or two here to, to see what kind of insights we can get. That's good to hear. Then outside 2024 20, and maybe to the next three to five years, what do you see as maybe the biggest industry changes, let's say 2025 and beyond, and maybe what are those driving forces? Are they regulatory or are there credit issues? What, what do you think in the next three to five? Sure. I think one of the big ones is always going to continue to be regulatory because we've seen some pull back in Europe in terms of the, the, the stringency of plowing forward to try and hit sustainability goals. It's not like they're going away wholesale. So the fact that you continue to see urban cities adopt these for, at the very least, energy efficiency, just monitoring, I think that's just a natural precursor to, okay, we're going to try and incentivize building owners to invest for the long term. The CPACE program is one area that has absolutely shattered any sort of expectations. So I think from an innovation standpoint, sustainability standpoint, that's a place that will continue to be very interesting. Industrial, with the, the data center needs going forward and some of the innovations in that space, gosh, we could spend another half hour unpacking that, but that's one where I'm very interested to see exactly what the needs will look like going forward. And so in that same time period, you touched on this a little bit, but what do you think about capital stacks changing in the next three to five years? And you think of any other different sources of capital you might see pop up in that time period? Sure. So I think uh, international flows could be a very interesting factor in 
the funding structure in, in some degree. There's been plenty of, of changes in cross-border capital flows this year. So just tangentially, I would just toss that one out there as food for thought. Yeah, I guess specifically, I'm interested to see exactly how much preferred equity or new debt we see in our structures. I think predominantly, we'll probably see it in the form of equity, right? You're not going to leverage a deal any more than it already is in the current environment of deleveraging. So I'd say, yeah, just seeing exactly how much existing owners are willing to stomach to try and salvage a deal. And so I guess with the final wrap up here, we have two questions we'd like to ask. One is, do you have any recommendations or guidance for any young professional that is looking to grow their career in, in CRE or in CRE research? Sure. So this is going to come from a, a personally biased standpoint uh, for what worked well for me, but I was never afraid or thought it was too valuable to roll my sleeves up and do the grunt work. And that's what I would say is never underestimate the value of a low paying job. Uh, think about the human capital and the experience you can build out of it. And as, as much as you want to hold your nose at it, sometimes that's what will get you ultimately to the place you want to be and beyond. And that's what did it for me. It's a very personal thing. There's never a one size fits all. It's definitely worth stepping back. If your gut reaction is to say, oh, that job is crap and I should never take it, just check the reaction and step back from it and think. That's great advice. And we got one more question for you. We asked this to all of our CRE exchange guests, and I have a feeling what your answer might be, but if you could snap your fingers and have any change to the industry come right now, what would it be and why? If I could snap my fingers, just to go back to this point earlier, it would be to have a large language model that could structure the unstructured so that I could do research on it. And there's probably some of our listener base out there would say, no way in heck, that's how I make a living is the informational advantage or the competitive advantages that I have. As a fan of market efficiency, I feel like we still have as many data points as we have, especially in the TREP data, it's eye-opening. It still isn't enough. We still don't have enough to understand some of the things that are heavily used by the industry, but I would say not easily priced. Great answer. And I think that's all the time we've got today, but thank you so much, uh, Stephen, for joining us today for a great conversation. And Omar, I look forward to speaking with you on the next episode of CRE Exchange. Have a good one. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the CRE Exchange podcast powered by Altus Group. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. This episode is brought to you by Altus Group a global leader in asset and fund intelligence for commercial real estate. At Altus, we bring together capabilities across technology, analytics, valuations, tax, and development advisory services. We are guided by bold thinking, integrity, and inclusivity, partnering with CRE professionals to maximize opportunities with exceptional service experience. Find out more at altusgroup.com.